so let's contemplate our motivation and contemplate the kindness of others whose efforts and actions and virtuous thoughts have given us the opportunity to be here today and to learn the Dharma. So the kindness of our parents who gave us this body, the kindness of teachers who taught us to read and write and basic skills, the kindness of our benefactors and so many supporters who have helped create the Abbey because they have faith in the Dharma and they want to see the Dharma and the Sangha flourish. And so with a deep sense of gratitude to all the beings and especially the Buddha who taught the Dharma to start with, let us really approach what we're about to do with a great sense of joy and delight and eagerness and with an aspiration to become like the Buddha and be able to do such great benefit for sentient beings. kind of finished um, talking about the Buddha's path and how he practiced and attained enlightenment. And so now I'd like to get into a little bit more about the higher training and ethical conduct, um, you know, as that pertains specifically to monastic life. And so I'm going to use one of the sutras that uh, I'm part of the portions that we talked about last year. Um, but not to go into as much depth of it as a way of reviewing kind of how uh, the Sangha is. I, oh, before I do that, I want to just say that in yesterday we had the story of the Buddha meeting that one person on the road as he was on the way to Benares and, and then teaching his disciples in Benares. And so those five disciples became... Um, you know, the first Sangha members. And the ordination ceremony was just the Buddha saying, Come, O Bhikshu. That was it. Okay? And so it went on like that for quite a number of years. And, and then uh, at one point, the Buddha went back to Kapilavastu, his birthplace. I think it was about six years after his enlightenment. And he went back there... Uh, and of course his father and mother and family heard that he was back there. They were quite shocked and, and so forth. Um, but he taught them and they, you know, became his followers. And when he left, he went to Vaisali. And his um, 
aunt, who was also his stepmother, who nursed him because his mother died a week after he was born. Um, she had a very strong wish to ordain, and so did 500 other Sakyan women. They often mention the number 500 in the scriptures. It just means a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't mean literally 500. Yeah. Um, so there had already been quite a number of Sakyan men who had renounced and become monks, but here the women wanted to. At the time of the Buddha, um, only the Jains allowed women to uh, you know, become wanderers. None of the other sects did. And uh, women's place was very much in the home. And even in modern India, although it's beginning to change, but that's only in the upper classes and educated classes, still now um, a woman is looked at as under the control of her father when she's young, her husband after she marries, and her son uh, when she's older. So to have women who wanted to ordain was something really unheard of. And I think the big... The first big women's march uh, for gender equality was um, these five Mahaprajapati Gautami and the 500 Sakyan women who uh, shaved their head, put on robes, and walked for miles from Kapalavastu to Vasali, where the Buddha was. And this was to have been quite a sight to have all these women from, you know, the a higher caste, uh, you know walk barefoot as the story goes the Buddha uh, at first refused them ordination and then Ananda asked quite specifically you know can they attain enlightenment and the Buddha said yes and then he agreed to ordain them and so at that time the uh, order of the nuns was born and at the beginning of uh, the dispensation the beginning of the Sangha uh, there were no specific precepts. It's just, you know, uh, you knew what you were supposed to do and not do. You know, you were a wanderer. You chose that lifestyle, and so this is what you did. And um, the, then there came one incident where there was one monk, and his uh, he had left his wife to ordain, and his mother and father really wanted him to leave an heir to their property because, uh, you know, it was very much the son's role to do all the funerary rites after the uh, fam- after the parents died and to carry on the lineage. There was, you know, this big thing of carrying on the lineage. And so since he had ordained, there was no heir. And the family said, can't you just come back and give us a, a child? A male child, of course. Um, And so this monk thought, okay, you know, I'll do it for the benefit of my parents. They're wanting this. So he went back and he had sex with his wife and she had a child and his parents were happy. But the the other monks brought this to the attention of the Buddha uh, who said, what are you think you're doing? You know, you're a renunciate. (laughs) And... So at that point, he started establishing the different precepts, um, you know, beginning with stating it very clearly about celibacy. 
And it's quite interesting the different stories behind each precept because each precept arose due to some event, due to some situation in which somebody did something that was naughty or inappropriate that was brought to the Buddha's attention and he said, hereafter my followers should, should not do this. Okay, so each precept has a story behind it of what somebody did, uh, you know, and then the Buddha was informed and the Buddha made a precept. And of course there was also uh, adjustments to the different precepts because the Buddha would say something, you know, according to one situation and then another thing would happen and it didn't quite fit exactly what happened so when that came, was brought to the Buddha's attention he would say okay we follow it like this except in this situation okay so for example um, you know with the precept about not eating uh, you know after midday then if you're doing manual work if you're ill if you've been traveling then there are various you know exceptions to that and so uh, you know, in this way, the, the precepts came to be. And I suspect at the beginning, the precepts weren't organized into different classes of which were the more serious, which were the less serious. Um, because the, as the story goes, after the Buddha passed away then, um, or at, before the Buddha passed away, actually, um, when he was dying, he, w- he said that um, you know, the precepts can be adjusted, but Ananda forgot to ask him which specific precepts can be adjusted. So then when it came time in the council to talk about it, everybody was afraid to change anything because they didn't know which was a major one and which was a minor one, so they decided to change nothing. Okay? And... Um, but somehow in that process, I mean, when we look at the Pratimoksha now, there's very definitely different categories of precepts according to the seriousness of them. So it's always made me think, you know, in the early days, maybe they weren't broken down into these categories, because otherwise they should have known which were more serious and which were less serious, because for each category of precepts, you know, there's a certain way to handle it. Uh, in any case, now we have, you know, this body called the Pratimoksha, which, you know, is the listing of the precepts that, that we have. And they all came about due to um, specific situations. So I'm sure if the Buddha were alive today, he would be making more precepts. Yeah, they, inter- they didn't have internet at the time of the Buddha. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have, um, uh, you know, so much disposable stuff that was polluting the world. They didn't have cars. So I'm sure that all these kinds of uh, things, how if the Sangha were involved in them, situations would come up where the Buddha would say, you know, you shouldn't use these things in this way. They should be used in this way. Okay? But uh, since the decision was made a long time ago not to change anything, then people, you know, have the idea we won't change anything. Although it is possible to do if you have a whole gathering of the Sangha and they all agree. But of course, with the Sangha spread out in so many countries right now, that's going to be a little bit difficult for it to happen. 
So what happens is that in each country, and to some extent within each monastery, people interpret the precepts in different ways. And then they also establish the rules of that particular monastery, which include things that maybe the Buddha didn't particularly speak about. And in Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, he actually rewrote the Pradimoksha. He's the only one who has done that. Uh, where some things were omitted and then he added other precepts about that regard the internet and driving in a car and certain things. And I'm sure as technology changes, he'll be updating that a lot. You know, But at the Abbey, we have our in own internal precepts re- regarding this. We're not going to change the Pratiloksha, uh, but instead you know, have it as an interpretation and as a mode that we keep it here so that there's one standard that we all adhere to. Um, okay, so somehow I got off on that tangent, but I wanted you to have that as, as a background about you know, the higher training and ethical conduct, which we talked about yesterday as being something that's indispensable for developing concentration, for developing wisdom, for developing bodhicitta. Okay, because you can see if you, you know, if we can't control our physical and verbal actions, which are what the pratimoksha controls, how are we going to uh, keep the bodhisattva and the vajrayana precepts, which are even more subtle and can be broken even by the mind without necessarily saying or doing something? Okay, so the pratimoksha precepts set, set out a very good training ground. And of course, there's different levels of pratimoksha according to people's um, level of comfort. So some people want to keep five precepts, some people eight, some people visit navas, some people full ordination. Okay, people are quite different in, in, in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed that other Tibetan teachers have a different first story well, yeah, I was surprised when Geshe Palke said that it was about the stealing one because uh, either uh, maybe it's different in the Mulashravastavada uh, Vanaya or maybe, you know, whatever, but I, I have a memory of it being the one about celibacy. But we can check up on that. But I remember saying, hmm, oh, that's not the way I remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So actually, there are different Vinaya traditions. When you know the Buddha first taught, there was just the Vinaya. Okay. Then, as Buddhism started to spread throughout India, and then from India to Southeast Asia, uh, you know, to Sri Lanka, from Sri Lanka up to China, then it began to go into what is in modern-day Iran and Afghanistan and Pakistan, and through you know, in modern-day Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan and that whole Central Asian region around the, the Silk Road that all used to be a big Buddhist haven, okay? And into China that way, and then from China to Korea and, um, and, and Vietnam and Japan and into Tibet. Tibet came, uh, Buddhism came to Tibet rather late and it came from India and it also came from China and then they decided to follow more the Indian tradition they have received. And into Thailand, it came mostly from India. Um, into other Southeast Asian countries, it came from India and I think also from Sri Lanka as well. But in any case, because 
Buddhism had spread so far and they didn't have telephones and fax machines and internet and all these kinds of things and it was an oral tradition everything was passed down orally and so you had the you know these different schools and there's uh, they talk about 18 different schools and they say that this started about a hundred years after the Buddha's Parinirvana. Some people say that, but it, it seems like they began to... I don't know, there's a lot of discussion about these 18, and there's different listings of what the 18 are, you know. <laughs> so, who knows what, what really the story was. But these different schools had, in many cases, their own Abhidharma, um, you know, their own Vinaya. And so there were some differences there and differences in, in beliefs and so on. Right now, there's only uh, three extant um, live Vinaya traditions. Um, one is the Pali tradition, which is mostly in... Um, there's a few of them among the Indians uh, in India that has been recently restored in the last few decades. But in um, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, partly in Vietnam, although the Mahayana is is stronger in Vietnam, Um, so in those countries. Then you have the Dharmaguptaka lineage, which is prominent in in, uh, China, and then uh, Vietnam, Korea, uh, and then you have the Mulushravastavada lineage, which is the one in, the, in Tibet. And Japan doesn't have a Vinaya lineage because um, even from the early centuries when, when Buddhism went there, not everybody ordained. And then in, the, in 1868, in the Mijai Restoration, the government wanted to break the Sangha's power. And so the best way to do it was to allow them to marry. So the government interfered and, you know, said everybody can marry. So then they married and then, you know, that changed the the whole thing. So they have priests, you know, Zen priests, uh, in Japanese Buddhism priests, but they're uh, not necessarily celibate. Most of them aren't, in fact. I think some of the women are, and our friends at Shasta Abbey are very unique in that way because uh, they, you know, their teacher decided that they were going to be celibate. Okay, so that's a little bit about the different schools. So, we, you know, we have the three uh, live um, Vinaya traditions nowadays. At the Abbey here, we're going to follow the Dharmaguptaka because that way we can have both fully ordained monks and fully ordained nuns because uh, in neither the Pali nor the Mulashravastavada do they have fully ordained nuns nowadays, although it is changing in the Theravada, in the Pali, and uh, they've started to ordain women. And there's still some controversy about it, but many of the monks have supported it. So our Tibetan tradition is very conservative, and the Thai tradition, you know, Thai, Burma, they don't agree with the Sri Lankans in, in ordaining Shunnis. Yeah. And the spread of the Mulishwathavada, is that just Tibet? Yeah, just Tibet and Mongolia. But then uh, also in Mongolia, due to the communist influence, then they married and, you know, they started to 
they got quite confusing. And so now they're starting to really try to reestablish the monasteries in Mongolia and ordain, you know, monks and nuns. But it's a challenge now to get everybody to be celibate after they went through those years of being allowed to marry. But hopefully it'll happen. Right, yeah, in the Japanese tradition they also don't have abstaining from uh, intoxicants. Um, there may be certain individuals who do, I mean like our friends at, at Shasta, um, but they, you know, they, they do have that. They have uh, a, the Japanese version of the bodhisattva vows and there they have a listing of 16 bodhisattva vows okay which include um, the three refuges and you know not killing and stealing and things like that um, but it's it's their version of the bodhisattva vows is different than the Chinese version of the bodhisattva vows and the Chinese version is much more similar to the Tibetan version yeah. And then the term monk I hear being used for the Japanese also, but in my, yeah. my, my thought was that monk would mean those who have the Yeah, this is something that's confusing with Japanese Buddhism when they use the term monk. Um, and I remember asking somebody from the San Francisco Zen Center about that, you know, and she said, yes, it is confusing also for us. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I think that's why I think it's easier to say priest because then it just clarifies that they're not celibate. But sometimes amongst them they use the term monk. And then some traditions, like our friends at Shasta, they use monk to refer to men and women. Okay, so, you know, there's this whole different way of using languages. Well, we would say somebody who has the pratimoksha, but if you have the pratimoksha, you're celibate. But you could have, like, Shasta they don't have the pratimoksha, but they're celibate. Right. I, you know, I consider them the monastics out of respect for, for them because they're a different tradition. But if somebody within the Tibetan tradition said, Oh, I keep celibacy, but I don't put on robes and I don't keep the rest of the Prati Moksha. I wouldn't say that person is a monk. Okay? But because they have their own system and, and it's coherent and systematic within what they do out of respect, I, you know, because they live like monastics. Hmm? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I thought that I would talk a little bit about, um, you know, morality here. But to start with the beginning of this particular sutta, this is quite interesting. There's a few other interesting points in it. Because the sutta is not particularly about morality, although it has a big section on it. It's actually about having right views. So it's called the Brahmajala Sutta. You know, and by the way, there is a Brahma Jala Sutra in the Mahayana, and that's where many, uh, that's where in the Chinese tradition, that's one version of the Chinese Bodhisattva vows 
is found in the Brahmajala Sutta and many of the uh, Bodhisattva vows that are in the Tibetan version of the Bodhisattva vows many of them are found in the Brahmajala Sutra but the Mahayana Brahmajala and the Pali Brahmajala are very different sutras okay so don't get confused okay so this is um, you know that uh, the Buddha was was traveling with a you know a, a big um, entourage of, of his disciples and there was another wanderer called uh, Supiya who was also traveling on the road with his pupil, who was named Brahmadatta. Okay, and Supiya, um, he was a you know belonged to another sect. I guess he was the teacher of that sect. He was criticizing the Buddha Dharma Sangha, finding many faults in them with their conduct, their view, with everything else. And his student Brahmadatta was praising the Buddha Dharma Sangha. <laughs> and so, you know, the Buddha's walking ahead on the road with his followers, and then Supiya uh, and Brahmadatta are walking behind, having all this discussion. And then they they spent the night there, and then the next morning, the uh, the Buddhist disciples were gathered, and they were saying, um, you know, how wonderful it is that the Buddha uh, sees and clearly distinguishes the different inclinations of beings. Because here's uh, Supiya who's finding all sorts of faults with the three jewels and his pupil Brahmadatta who is defending them in many ways. And so in the middle of the monks having this discussion, the Buddha comes in and he says, what are you talking about? And they tell him. And then um, he comments, he says, monastics, if anyone should speak in disparagement of me, of the Dharma or of the Sangha, you should not be angry, resentful, or upset on that account. If you were to be angry or displeased at such disparagement, that would only be a hindrance to you. For if others disparage me, the Dharma and the Sangha, you, and you are angry and displeased, can you recognize whether what they say is right or not? Okay, so somebody's criticizing the three jewels. You're unhappy, you're angry and resentful and belligerent because they're criticizing your teacher and your your path and you know your Dharma friends. And so when you're angry, can you recognize whether what these people are saying is right or not? When we're angry, can, do we see a situation clearly? No, we think we do, <laughs> but we don't. Okay, so the monks were smart. They said no. <laughs> yeah. So the Buddha continued, If others disparage me, the Dharma, or the Sangha, then you must explain what is incorrect as being incorrect, saying that is incorrect, that is false, that is not our way, that is not found amongst us. Okay? So if somebody's criticizing something, uh, you know, criticizing the Buddha Dharma Sangha, saying things that aren't true, misunderstanding things, and then criticizing due to their misunderstanding, then there's no reason or purpose to get angry about it. You know, we don't have to have our ego attached to it. Wait, this is my religion, my teacher, my path. How dare you criticize? We don't need to feel that way. All we need to do is 
be calm, listen to what the people say, and use our own wisdom to see how what they say is incorrect, that they're misinterpreted things, they didn't understand correctly, and therefore explain to them in a nice, courteous way how they have, you know, they have misunderstood things, and this is really what we believe in and what we don't believe in, and so on and so forth. Okay, so this is very good advice for us nowadays, too. Okay? <laughs> like when that person, that born again Christian in Singapore, told me I was a heathen. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> so, then you have to. Or when I was in Israel and somebody said, You worship idols. <laughs> then, you know, you have to explain. But there's no sense of purpose for getting, you know, angry at people. Then the Buddha said, um, but monastics, if others should speak in praise of me, of the Dharma or of the Sangha, you should not on that account be pleased, happy, or elated. If you were to be pleased, happy, or elated at such praise, that would only be a hindrance to you. If others praise me, the Dharma or the Sangha, you should acknowledge the truth of uh, what is true, saying that is correct, that is right. That is our way. That is found amongst us. So here he's saying, even if people come and say, Buddha's magnificent, the sun is wonderful, the Dharma is wonderful, you guys are spectacular, that we should not get elated and feel a little bit proud of, oh, somebody's praising my path. Somebody thinks I'm good. Somebody thinks what I'm doing is right. You know, we shouldn't go to that extreme because... You know, that kind of arrogance and um, false elation that only becomes a hindrance to us, you know, because it's ego involvement in there, isn't it? Okay? So the Buddha is saying, you know, somebody praises, then you just say, yes, you're correct. We do believe this and we do practice in this way and this is, you know, what the Buddha said and uh, without getting, you know, kind of puffed up in here okay and then the Buddha continues it is monastics for elementary inferior matters of moral practice that the worldling would praise the Tathagata you might say wait a minute elementary inferior matters of moral practice that the worldling the uneducated kind of ordinary person would praise the Tathagata why is the Buddha saying that moral practice is elementary and inferior. What he's saying here is not that it's unnecessary, is not that it's... um, what, What he's saying is that the real purpose of the path isn't just ethical conduct. It's liberation, okay? So people who praise the Buddha and his disciples simply for their ethical conduct, of course it's good that they appreciate that ethical conduct, but those people aren't, at that moment, they don't have the capacity to look deeper to see that the real thing they're trying to practice is concentration and wisdom and to attain liberation. Okay? So ethical conduct is important and it's necessary and it's a crucial aspect, but it's not sufficient. It's the foundation. Okay? 
So then he starts going through and he starts talking about what is ethical conduct. Okay? So abandoning the taking of life, the ascetic, um, and here he's called an ascetic. Uh, this is a different translator. Yesterday uh, we were using Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of uh, recluse. You could also say wanderer. It was, you know, this whole group of people. So when we say ascetic here, it doesn't mean he's doing ascetic practices. You know, the severe ascetic. Okay, the ascetic Gautama dwells refraining from taking life without stick or sword, scrupulous, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Thus the worldly would, will worldling would praise the Tathagata. Okay? So, you know, that's something that ordinary people see and they praise, and that's good. You know, the, the Sangha doesn't take life, and it earns the respect of society in that way. And it's definitely a contribution to world peace because every single person who, does, who has abandoned harming others physically, it means that everybody who comes uh, to be around them can feel secure and safe in their life. And that's important. You know, we shouldn't poo-poo this, but it's quite a major uh, contribution to world peace. In the news, um, over the last few months, that they found some records of one um, Nazi doctor who had left Germany as late as like 1963. He was on the wanted list, you know, for the Nuremberg trials, because he did experiments on on um, people in in the uh, camps. And he would do uh, operations with anesthet- without anesthetic and let people die. He would inject poison into their hearts, even gasoline into their hearts. I mean, this guy was like so brutal. And he was a, a doctor and just experimenting on human beings and causing this kind of pain. And you see one person doing this, the effect, you know, on many people. And so us as one person abandoning physical aggression towards others is quite a powerful statement. It really means that everybody who comes near us can be relaxed and feel safe. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, the ascetic Gautama dwells refraining from what it, from taking what is not given. Uh, living, so that means stealing. But it's interesting, it's phrased taking what is not given. Because most of us would say, I don't steal. You know, because we've been taught since we were little not to steal. But do we sometimes take things that haven't been directly given to us? Uh, we do that <laughs> you know at our workplace use things that belong to, to the workplace for private things you know, all sorts of little ways and so we don't think of ourselves as stealing kind of like that um, that, uh, that thing in what was it called the book um, yeah predictably irrational yeah how people would fudge on different things they didn't see themselves as stealing or is lying, yeah, but it's actually taking what is not given. 
So it falls under this. Um, okay, so the Buddha's disciples living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given, without stealing. Abandoning unchastity, the ascetic Gotama lives far from it, aloof from the village practice of sex. Okay, so no family, no porn, no treating human beings as sex objects. Abandoning false speech, the ascetic Gotama dwells refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. So here it talks about really the benefits of telling the truth. We become somebody who others can rely on. We become trustworthy, dependable, and not one that is seen as, you know, being a deceiver. And then here he goes more, not just into the the precepts but other non-virtues about speech and I think this is done to really emphasize how important it is to watch our speech because we create so much unhappiness in our speech yeah when you think about it in, in your life have you created more unhappiness through what you've done physically or through what you've said to other people Yeah, speech is really powerful. Yeah, so this little thing we learned when we were little—you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but uh, words will never hurt me. Ha ha ha! That wasn't really true, was it? Okay. So it's important to be careful of our speech. So abandoning malicious speech. He, referring to the Buddha, does not repeat there what he has heard here to the detriment of these or repeat here what he has heard there to the detriment of those. So he knows when to keep confidentiality. He doesn't spread rumors if people ask him about something and he knows it's a sensitive issue. He doesn't go and tell these people so that those people will suffer. Okay? Thus, he is a reconciler of those at variance and an encourager of those at one, those who are unified and harmonious, rejoicing in peace, loving it, delighting in it, one who speaks up for peace. So really using our speech not to create schism, but to bring people together. And this, too, can be very difficult, you know. When you're in a community, if there's somebody who really, you know, gets your goat then and, and you're not able to work out your anger then you go talk to somebody else in the community and tell them what the awful things were that this person did so that that person would side with you against them yeah so instead of doing that you know if we're unhappy with somebody first of all we should try and talk with the individual concerned If we don't feel like we're calm enough to do that and we need help calming ourselves down, then to go to a Dharma friend and talk to them about the situation, but not with the motivation of dumping our anger on them so that they'll side with us against the other person, but in a way of owning our anger and saying, I'm really angry, I'm really upset, and need to talk to somebody about it who will give me Dharma advice and help me calm down. 
So it's with that motivation that we may talk with somebody about it. And that person who listens, you know, should do, like as the one we just previously covered, not go then and tell the other person, you know, so-and-so is really ticked off with you and they're saying blah, 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 blah. You know, but recognize that that person is coming to you because they're unhappy, they're angry, they need to talk about it. Help them in a Dharma way. But then don't go and start other tales about the whole thing. You know, if it's important that somebody else know about it, like in a community, many times it's important that the leader knows about something, or sometimes it may be important that somebody's teacher knows about something, or in the workplace it might be important that, you know, the manager knows about something, then you might say something. But you say you check your motivation first and you make sure that you're really doing it for the good of others. Okay? So he's um, abandoning harsh speech. He refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless. So remember yesterday I was saying the word blame and blameless. This is referring to, you know, what's wise and what's unwise. So he speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, urbane, pleasing, and attractive to the multitude. Yeah? So one knows what to talk about, to whom, yeah, and speaks in a pleasing way, pointing out people's good qualities. That doesn't mean you, you whitewash things and you don't talk about bad things. You know, some people do that. It's like inside there's all this stuff going on, but they... But they just, you know, talk about nice things on the surface, but you can tell there's a lot bubbling up. You know, it's good to talk about what's nice on the surface, but you have to work out what's going on underneath. And sometimes that involves going and confiding in somebody and seeking help. Okay, but you're doing it because you know your own mind is upset, not because you want to create discord or something. Abandoning idle chatter, he speaks at the right time what is correct and to the point of dharma and of discipline. Okay, he is the speaker whose words, so he, does, he isn't somebody who's like chatting, 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 chatting. Uh, you know, those people who like go on and on. Yeah. You know those people? Oh, we're not any of them, do we? No, we, we, we stop talking. We only say what's appropriate. We don't go on and on and keep somebody on the telephone when they want to hang up. And, you know, we don't idle chatter, just blah, 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 you know, at all hours of the day and night, do we? No. We always talk about what's important, what's timely. Right? <laughs> So I'm not saying, you know, we should shut up and not talk. That's not the point either. Yeah, we should talk, but we should be mindful about what we're talking about. Um, He is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, um, seasonable, reasoned, well-defined, and connected with the goal of liberation. Thus the worldling would praise the Tathagata. And then he goes on, the ascetic Gautama is a refrainer from damaging seeds and crops. Okay, because this was an agrarian society, if you damage seeds and crops, you are making people unhappy. He eats once a day and not at night. Okay, refraining from eating at improper times. The reason that the Sangha had 
this uh, precept about not eating in the afternoon was so that because they were wanderers so that they wouldn't be troublesome or bothersome to the lay people who were giving, giving alms okay and also so that it wasn't dangerous for them because there are some stories there's one story in the Vinaya of one monk who, who went out and um, at night to gather alms and the people in the house couldn't see him well and they thought he was a ghost and they started screaming in fright you know so you don't want to frighten other people okay there's another story of a monastic who went out you know and it was already you know kind of dusk he couldn't see so well and he stepped in the uh, community toilet and fell in a pit so uh, you know there's many there were many reasons for not uh, eating in the evening those were some of them and then just not to be an annoyance so that so that the lay people who did offer to the ascetics they would know that they only cooked one time a day and they would offer food and then they would know that they had the rest of the food for their family instead of people coming at all hours of the day and night and also so that people wouldn't eat a whole lot late in the day and then feel so heavy that they couldn't meditate okay Mm. he avoids uh, watching dancing singing music and shows no Ed Sullivan (laughs) that means no Beatles oh my goodness okay so this can be a real thing of you know stepping aside from from society not losing ourselves in entertainment you know watching this movie and that movie this television show and that one because lots of times you know like at a workplace that's what you communicate with people about is what happened on the latest you know episode of whatever television program is in fad at that point okay so we don't get involved in entertainment and these and music and these kinds of things um it's fine to watch documentaries you know read educational books um you know get some knowledge of the world through the news but we we, we kind of do this in moderation and we don't just lose ourselves in all sorts of entertainment stuff and often people ask, well, you know, what's wrong with music? What's wrong with singing? You know, what's wrong with dancing? Nothing's wrong with them. These things are not naturally negative actions. Okay? But it's just that when you engage in them, I don't know about you, but if I'm listening to music or singing or something, I sit down to meditate and it's all going through my mind again. Okay? You know, and if I go dancing, because I used to be a dancer before I, I ordained, and um, you know then I, it just draws attention to you and you know look at me and how what a great dancer I am whatever it is okay so these kinds of things of, of um, drawing attention and or, you know distraction okay um, so again this doesn't mean that the uh, this is an important thing there's a difference between things that are naturally negative and things that the Sangha uh, does not do because, the, because of a precept the Buddha set out. Okay? So actions, you know, like killing, stealing, lying, these things, you know, by their nature, almost everybody, except if you're a highly realized being, has a negative motivation when they do them. 
You know, it could be anger, it could be attachment, it could be ignorance, but very few people kill out of wisdom. You know, so it's a naturally negative action because, you know, there has to there's there's some uh, defilement involved in the mind that gets you to do that kind of action. So those kind of actions, when we have our vows. There's the natural negativity that you get if you transgress and do that action. And then since there's a precept, there's a, um, a fault because the Buddha said don't do that and you're transgressing what the Buddha said don't do. But then there are other precepts that are not naturally negative, but we do them simply because the Buddha, we keep them, or we abandon certain actions simply because the Buddha said don't do them, Be, you know. And that, mean, that doesn't mean you necessarily have a negative action, if you, a negative motivation if you do them. That's why they're not naturally negative. But they can be inconvenient for people, they are easy to create discord, so on and so forth. So, for example, eating in the evening is not a naturally negative action, but it's something prescribed by the Buddha. Or singing, dancing, playing music are not naturally negative. They're, they're prescribed, you know, because you can waste a lot of time. Not engaging in business and buying and selling things for prices to earn, you know, for, um, to earn money and things like that. It's not naturally negative, but the Sangha doesn't do it because the Buddha was trying to create a certain kind of structure and framework which would help people to practice. Okay? So lots of times in our bi-monthly confession, yeah, we are uh, confessing all the times that we, went, we transgressed one of the precepts that the Buddha said and committed that you know, it's not a naturally negative action. It's, it's uh, you know, a fault because it was prescribed. So we, we purify those. And, of course, you know, in our confession, if we have regret in the four opponent powers, then we also purify the naturally negative part of some of the actions that we did. You know, if there was ignorance, anger, and attachment involved. Okay? Clear about this? Okay, so it's in this, this is why, you know, when you see in the Bodhisattva vows, it talks about sometimes for the benefit of sentient beings, it's okay to go beyond the limits set by the Pradimoksha. And uh, here, just referring to ordinary beings, I'm not talking about people with high, high realizations, what we should interpret that as is some of these there, you know, certain Vinaya things and Pratimoksha things that are not naturally negative. If it's of more benefit that you don't keep that literally, then, you know, you're, you're aware that you're transgressing what the Buddha said don't do, but you also know why you're doing it, and in that way you're actually fulfilling the Bodhisattva vow. But you have to be careful not to use the Bodhisattva vows as a rationalization for doing what your ego wants to do by saying, I'm doing it for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay? And in terms of doing naturally negative actions, we really need to think very, very carefully before doing those because as ordinary beings, it would be really hard for us to have a pure bodhicitta 
uh, motivation for doing this or a pure compassionate motivation. Yeah, some of the beings who have realized emptiness may be able to do that. It's difficult for us to be able to do. But in any case, you know, if we decide to go beyond the bounds of the Pradimoksha vows for whatever reason, we should have, you know, some clarity in our mind and be unwillingness to accept the results of our actions. Yeah, lots of times I find people want to bargain about karma. You know, <laughs> kind of like, well, you know, my ha- my house is completely filled with cockroaches, so isn't it beneficial for me to kill the cockroaches because that way I'm protecting human life? And so that's what they're saying. But deep in the mind is, I hate those cockroaches. Yeah. Yeah. The words are, I'm protecting human life by keeping a sanitary thing. But the feeling inside is, I hate cockroaches and I don't want to get sick. Okay, so I think it's important for us to be honest in those situations, you know, that if we are going to decide to do that, that we are willing to accept the karmic result. Yeah? And, and in that way, just be honest about it. Yeah? Okay, I'm deciding to kill the cockroaches, but I'm going to do it with some regret, with some compassion. I'm willing to accept, you know, some negative karmic result ripening as a result of this. You know, just at least some some clarity when we do these things instead of just skimming over it. Okay? And because and, I find that people will ask me about this. When I say bargaining, it's kind of like, you know, well, that's not negative karma, is it? As if it's up to me to give them dispensation or give them, um, what is it? Absolution, that's it. You know, as if I'm going to give them absolution and say, oh yes, you know, it's, it's perfectly all right to have an abortion or do this or that. There's no negative karma. I can't give you absolution. You know, you have to think about things and make your own decision and be willing to accept the results. I'm just telling you what the, what the Buddha said about karma. Um, okay, what else? He abstains from using garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. Again, that's because when you use it, you draw attention to yourself. It's easy to become arrogant. Um, we try and use soap and deodorant without perfume. Sometimes that's difficult, um, you know, but just don't be attached to it, but really try and use things without those scents. Um, and some of the stuff, I mean, it stinks. You know, this hand lotion, it's, ugh, it's horrible. Um, he avoids using high or wide beds or seats. That's because... Um, it makes you proud you're sitting higher you know especially in Indian society everybody sat on the floor so if you sat up higher oh everybody's looking at you you're important blah blah so what we want to do I think in in our society is not sit in when we can avoid it in a place of prominence where just by sitting there we can kind of puff ourselves up okay um, he avoids accept, accepting gold and silver, so that is um, money, and and also literally gold and silver, because they're objects of attachment, aren't they? 
oh, this is gold, so beautiful, this is silver, I want it, you know. And then, of course, money. Um, so nowadays, this one's very difficult. In the um, forest tradition of the Sri Lanka, of the, not Sri Lanka, of the Thai Theravadas, they don't handle money. Okay, um, some of the other Theravadas do, most of the Mahayana do. The idea is to handle money as little as possible. And uh, if you're handling money, you know, to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and, you know, not to go out and spending money just because you want things. So, you know, in America, it's, it's a little bit difficult around this whole issue of money. Before I started the Abbey, I talked to uh, some other people about it. And uh, some groups, you know, said, okay, you, you have everybody give what they, uh, all the money they have, you, they give it to the monastery before they are ordained. But then somebody else said, you know, in America, if people do that if later they leave and get mad they can sue you yeah so they said it's better not to have them uh, give up all their personal money to the monastery so in some groups you can give it to family members you can give it to other people okay and and but you know usually in a monastic situation there's some requirement about that um you know, I talk to, there's so many different ways that different monasteries handle it. Often in the Tibetan tradition, they just ignore this and people keep their own private money. But I've seen what happens when they do that. And what happens is that then people just go around and buy this and that that they like because they like it. Um, they also, in India it happens, they, you know, because they have to get their own money to pay for their own things, then everybody's always trying to talk up some benefactors. So that adds a really kind of weird feeling sometimes in relationships to people. Um, and so, and also it creates this gap between the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy monastics and the ones who don't have money. And I don't think that that's so good for people's minds. So here at the Abbey, the way we're doing it, at least right now, is you don't have to give up your, your private money. You can keep it, but you can only use it for, for um, medical and dental expenses, for travel and offerings uh, to teachings, and for... Um, oh, travel was one, and then offerings to, was the other. Yeah, so for those three things. So we can't decide, oh, I want a new this or that, you know, for my room to decorate my room and this is mine or whatever. Okay? And then also the way we do it at the Abbey is when there's times, you know, when His Holiness is teaching or there's other big Dharma events, instead of, you know, all the people who have private money being able to go and the people who don't having to stay here, we take turns going. And if, um, you know, and if somebody doesn't have the money, we make sure that somehow they have it. Yeah? And so we help each other that way, or we talk to outside people, or we get frequent flyer miles or something, so that everybody can kind of participate equally. Yeah? Because, you know, just I lived in communities where there were the rich or the poor, and 
not a good feeling. Yeah. Myself, personally, I would like so much not to have private money. I would really like just not to have it, not to have to think about it or anything. But at this stage of the Abbey's development, I don't feel like, you know, we're kind of ready to do that. And we have to have a, you know, a stronger base and have some money to be able to help other people. So, but that's kind of what I would like to work towards, personally speaking. Yeah. Um, okay, gold and silver. He avoids accepting raw, raw grain, raw flesh, uh, slaves, um, animals, fields, and plots, although the Buddha would accept uh, land offered to the Sangha so to set up a vihara or a, a rama, but he didn't accept uh, land to be cultivated. For, by, for agriculture because the Sangha he didn't want the Sangha to be distracted by doing agriculture okay um, he refrains from running errands okay we might think what's wrong with running errands well you become kind of a busybody if you run errands yeah because you're taking messages between this person and that person and the other person because remember there weren't telephones and telegraph and computers at that time so if you're an an errand runner a message carrier you get involved in politics you get involved in marriage deals because marriages were made by means of you know somebody else running back and forth it becomes like you know not the right profession for Sangha to be involved in okay so not running errands um, not he refrains from buying and selling so you know again it, it, if we can buy and sell things at our own leisure then our attachment can run wild I want this I want that I need this I need that okay and also then selling thinking you know how can I make a buck from somebody else so that just is you know a very not nice mental state it's a you know um yeah, it's, it's not a good mental state. From cheating with false weights and measures, so from cheating people in any way, shape, or form. From bribery and corruption, so we don't have bribery and corruption. From deception and insincerity, you know, so practitioners should refrain from those. From wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. Thus the worldling would praise the Tathagata. Okay. And so here it's talking about, you know, the kind of ethical conduct that the Buddha and his followers keep. And, you know, for us to understand why to do those things and to be mindful of them. And a lot of these things are actually good topics for conversation. So I really encourage um, all of us to talk about these and, you know, how does this apply now in the 20th century? How do we keep this now? What's a good way to, to manage that, this and that? Okay. Questions?
I often hear it said about how revolutionary it was for the Buddha to have taken women disciples to the nation that the James had been. Mm-hmm. And in my impression, the James were a fairly large sect at that time. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem like it was that radical of like. Okay, so you're saying if the Jains accepted women disciples, then why is it said to be radical that, that the Buddha did? Well, I don't know how large the Jains were, but there were so many different groups out there. Okay? Um, so that was one thing. And also, from the, the mentality of the general Indian population, you know, the women were very protected. And they didn't want the women leaving the home, leaving the children, leaving the husbands, um, you know, being uh, prone to, to, you know, sexual abuse or whatever if they weren't under the protection of a man. You know, because that's the way they thought at that time. Yeah. And a woman, you know, at that time, her only choice was to get married. <laughs> you know, um, and the parents arranged the marriages. And so for the Buddha to really release women from that, that very restricted um, societal role was quite revolutionary at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I read part of an article, I didn't get to it, um, but it talked about after the Buddha decided to ordain women mm-hmm. around this request and, mm-hmm. and the problems request, that he made some sort of statement that this will possibly negatively affect the environment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's this part of the story of the Vinaya about the creation of, of the nuns order was that after the Buddha ordained Mahabharata Gautami that he said this will decrease the um, length of time of this of the of the dispensation of the sasana from a hundred years to five hundred years. However, the Buddha Dharma still exists now, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So that prediction was, you know, these kinds of things. It's hard to tell what the Buddha actually said and what was added later. Yeah, we don't really know what the actual story was. Um, you know, some people say that because Ananda had to intercede. And, uh, you know, the Buddha refused three times and then Ananda had to intercede like he was talking the Buddha into having nuns. Um, First of all, do you really think somebody can talk the Buddha into doing something he he didn't want to do? No. Second of all, in the, the story that we saw yesterday, the Buddha at first didn't want to teach. And it was by the Brahma... Uh, asking him you know and requesting him do people say the Buddha made a mistake there because he gave he uh, accepted a request that was made to him no okay so uh, you know these kinds of things it's hard to, to really tell about them and for myself personally it's like you know, it's like, leave that. You know, I don't want that to disturb my mind or to spend a lot of mental energy on it. It was, you know, something that they recorded then and there and, you know, who knows what. But the fact of the matter is, if you look nowadays, um, having women in the Sangha is very beneficial for the existence of the Dharma and for the spread of the Dharma in the world. Yeah? 
So it kind of boils down to that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a question I've had for a long time. It's about the, um, the refrain, celibacy and refrain from sexual activity in this case, but with the idea of, because one is complex, so explicit about what sexual misconduct is mm-hmm. in, the, in the long run, and it's pretty narrow mm-hmm. what seems to be appropriate sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how much of that comes from the Buddha, how much do we think was almost in Papa, and then today, when mm-hmm. people have that question, how, yeah. how do we actually respond in a way that's really useful? Okay. Right. <laughs> Not just conventionally acceptable. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the Lamrim Chenmo, it gives all sorts of rules and regulations for what's considered proper sexual relationships and time of day and positions and with whom and all this kind of stuff. And so how do we look at that and how much of it came from the Buddha, how much of it came from others later on? In the Pali scriptures, none of this has gone into detail. In the Mahayana tradition, it seems to mostly have come from Basubandhu, who lived in the 3rd century, there, Alex's idea that it was that at, it was at, the, at that time maybe that Tantra was beginning to start, and so the Buddhists felt this need to like let's you know be more explicit about what is appropriate sexual relationship, because otherwise people are really going to misunderstand this whole thing. So Vasubandhu, you know that's where it, it's mostly tra- traced back to. There's a few statements in, in Mahayana Sutras about this or that, but, you know, not tons of them. Um, and that precept is always explained from the viewpoint of a straight male who has no physical incapacities. Okay? Um, and I think that, that if I, I'm expressing my opinion here, Okay, so I'm not talking from the tradition. It's my, just my opinion. I think that that precept has a lot of... You have to look at the society. For example, I was listening to one Tibetan Lama talk about what constitutes sexual misconduct or unwise and unkind sexual behavior and what doesn't. And he said that if somebody else pays for a prostitute but you sleep with her, that is... Uh, infraction of that. I nearly went through the ceiling, you know, because the implication is that prostitution is fine and there's no problem as long as you pay for it. And what's interesting is at the Buddha's time, you know, there were these Cartesians and actually some of his... Um, most devoted disciples. There was one disciple. What was her name? Um, I can't remember her name. She was a very wealthy, refined Cartesian. I mean, a Cartesian is basically a, a, a prostitute for rich people, you know. But she was a devout disciple of the Buddha, you know. And he accepted offerings from her and everything. And that was seen as fine and there was you know nothing said for about you know men going to prostitutes at all and but I think this has a lot to do with the culture because clearly you know in our time and culture prostitution is horrible 
you know, and it's like to have women and young girls sold into prostitution. Yeah, because the families can't, you know, support them. And then how the women are, are blamed and, you know, the men, you know, it's, I mean, the women, the, the prostitutes are looked down upon in society, but the men who frequent them are not. Which has always seemed very contradictory to me because they wouldn't be prostitutes if there weren't men who wanted them to be. Yeah, so why do they look down on the women but not on the men? Doesn't make much sense, okay? And the whole thing with spreading disease and this and that and the other thing. So I think a lot of this stuff is very influenced by culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. So um, I think one thing that Vasubandhu was trying to get across was to prevent people from getting so preoccupied with sex that that's what all that was on their mind and they were continually having sex and looking for bigger and better and more, you know, peak experiences so that their lust was like completely bananas and out of control. So I think that's one, you know, one of the things that he was setting by stating different times and places and people and orifices and da 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 da. Okay. Now, in terms of gay sex, which is probably one of the things that we get asked most about, um, you know, there is a clip on the internet of His Holiness saying it's wrong. You know, and he's, you know, but His Holiness cannot say something aside from what the great masters have said. Yeah? You know, because if, if His Holiness, you know, I mean, he can't say, you know, Vasubandhu this or that, or this was societal or whatever. He has to explain the tradition. But very much in Tibetan society, that is the case. You know, they say, uh, you know, homosexuality is bad. And they also say it doesn't exist in Tibetan society. Um, okay what when people ask me about it what I do is I say okay I'm giving you my personal opinion here I'm not speaking from the traditional viewpoint but I think that the that the meaning of the precept is to avoid unwise and unkind sex okay unwise in, in the in the sense of Um, unprotected sex that could spread disease to other people, to yourself, you know. Um, Unkind sex where you're using somebody for your own gratification, where somebody else is getting emotionally attached to you, but you don't care about that and you don't care if they get hurt. Um, If somebody else belongs to somebody, you know, is somebody else's partner and you don't care about disturbing their relationship, or if you're already engaged in a relationship and you don't care about hurting your partner, if somebody has children that are going to be you know, adversely affected by their mother or father sleeping with somebody else, to me, this is the, the meaning of it. So I just explain it and I say, you know, this, this is my idea and I'm not speaking from the tradition. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to the person, how, you know, to do what what they want. Mm-hmm. But I really sincerely feel that that it's much more important instead of a list of do's and don'ts that people really think about, you know, well, why am I having sex? 
and with who and am I treating this person properly and what's going to be the result of, of my having sex with them on my family on their family on the other people in you know in the society and, and the whole thing about sexual harassment you know in my mind that's included in that so if somebody at a workplace is sexually harassing somebody you know I would consider that an infraction of course, you know, at the Buddhist time, what did they know about sexual harassment? You know? Okay? So that's why, personally speaking, I think this has a lot to do with the culture. Also, for example, in old Tibet, it was perfectly all right. Usually women had many husbands, because that was a way in old Tibet that you kept the property within the family, where several brothers married the same wife. Okay, in our society, that's not socially acceptable, is it? You know, I mean, in our society, people are taught to be monogamous. Yeah. So I think it has a lot to do with with the society in general. That's my personal opinion. I'm guessing that in the Buddhist time there weren't mixed gender and monastic institutions. Yeah, at the Buddhist time also there weren't mixed gender. So where, when did this start? When did this start of having mixed gender? Um, I don't know. I would. I think it probably started maybe in the 20th century. Although it's hard to say because I think all along in the like in the Theravada tradition. They, uh, the women can take eight precepts and become my cheese. Um, they can often live at the monastery, or a number of lay women live at the monastery in a separate place from where the monks live. So it's considered a single gender monastery. Yeah, these monks would not say no. There's women. they wouldn't say there's women living here. In fact, there might be the, the white-robed nuns, there might be lay women living there, but what they do mostly is they serve the monks. Okay? So, um, I don't know, in the Tibetan tradition, they usually have them separated. Um, sometimes in the monasteries, they'll let relatives stay, you know, in one or the other. Um, I think the main concern people have is that of people getting sexually attracted to each other and getting involved in relationships. So I've talked to a number of people about this, you know, in terms of, of uh, when I was established the Abbey. And what I've learned from Westerners, not from Asians, because Asians just basically say, no, don't have the two genders together. That's it. Finished. Okay. Um, what I've talked, especially the people from Shasta, and my own observation, is that when people are not satisfied in their own Dharma practice, okay, when they feel kind of lonely, when they're, they have cut themselves off from the community emotionally in some way or another, then this loneliness, you know, nobody likes feeling lonely. So then you want to seek a special friend. And that's when people tend to fall in love. Yeah, I think when people are really strong in their practice and their practice is going well, they're they're not looking for this 
and they're also not reacting to it. Yeah? Okay? But at the same time, we have to admit that, you know, there is a lot of sexual attraction between the sexes. And nowadays, when you have many gay people ordaining too, then what do you do? Yeah? Do you put everybody in a different monastery because they might get attracted to each other? I found it very strange when I was in Thailand. There was one monk there who was gay. And he was really defending this thing of, you know, the women not being allowed to stay at the monastery. <laughs> and, or staying in a certain section and, you know, like this. And he, he was a Westerner. And I said, but, you know, if the purpose is sexual attraction, you know, to avoid sexual attraction, what about you? You know, living in the monastery. <laughs> and, you know, aren't you getting attracted to people? And, you know, isn't there the thing that people might get attracted to you? And then he said, well, you know, I don't get attracted to people who look like this. I get, you know, people, blah, 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 blah. What I think it was, personally speaking, my hunch, was that this was one situation in which he was accepted as one of the guys because... According to the Vinaya, he could stay there. Yeah. And so, you know, it was one situation when he was accepted. I saw another situation at a, a Western Theravada monastery. One of the people who had ordained was gay. He was one of my students. When, I, when we met at a conference, he was all nervous about, you know, we wanted to talk. He was all nervous about, okay, I have to go outside. You know, we'll sit outside in plain view and talk there. You know, as if I didn't also have that vow. You know, um, but very concerned that, you know, we be in plain view and he would not sit in a room alone together and everything. But when his former partner, who they had been partners for years and years and years, came to visit him at the monastery, they could go for walks alone together. Because it was okay for two men to walk together. But I couldn't walk alone with him. You know, so this kind of way of keeping it, you know, I, I want to look at the purpose and like how, okay, you know, everybody's a sexual being. How are we going to avoid sexual attraction, whether it's gay or whether it's straight? You know, and I think that that, that, that comes through, you know, we have to restrain our senses, Okay, I think that's a big part. And we have to derive some kind of satisfaction from our, our Dharma practice, you know, because then we don't start looking around. So that's on our level as an individual. And also as a community, we have certain rules, like, you know, nobody goes in somebody else's bedroom. I don't care whether you're straight or gay or, you know, you're a woman, all the women living in Gotami House, if you're going to talk, you talk in a, in a public area in the house. People don't go in each other's bedrooms, men, women, or otherwise. Okay? And, you know, and we watch who, you know, we make it when people are working together that they're working together in groups. We don't put young men and young women together in a group working together. You know, if, or, and, you know, we should look for the old ones too, although for the old ones, you know, your body's a little bit different, you know. Thank goodness. I mean, it's one advantage of getting old, isn't it? Is your body stops, you know, <laughs> this craziness. But, um, you know, so we look at that, and if we notice anybody kind of looking at each other or people not dressing properly, 
you know, people coming here in tight clothes or whatever, you know, we politely pull the person aside and we say something to them or, you know, or, and we just help each other in this way. Yeah. Because I think in the West, um, it's very difficult. The Sangha is so small in number that to have to duplicate everything is not very efficient. Okay. But we do have to be aware of these kinds of things. And we also have to be aware that not all the Asians are going to agree with us. So we don't advertise it and throw it in their face that we're doing this, you know, because many of them are just used to Dharma centers. Yeah, so we just, yeah. Was there something else specific you wanted to know about that or? Other questions you have about it? No, I was just actually curious when, when, where it started. Yeah. Even today, uh, Catholic institutions are still in a single gender. Right. And yeah. I think personally that what we have here is great because there's a balance. Mm-hmm. a rich mm-hmm. um, mixing of people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I was just curious about the historical point. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's more... Yeah, well, at least in Theravada, you know, the women had to be there to take care of the monks, and it develops a kind of strange dynamic sometimes, too. In um, in the Chinese temples, there's some uh, temples and monasteries that are just one sex only, uh, but there's many of them, the, the large monasteries, uh, you know, with, with very charismatic teachers, they have both monks and nuns. Yeah, Dharma drum, you saw? Yeah, Chung Tai, Fokuan Shan. Yeah, so these very large ones have both. Was it in Shravasti? At Shravasti, uh, in ancient India, there was a community of nuns and a community of monks. They were separate communities. Okay. the teachings from the Buddha together? Yeah, I would assume they had the teachings together. And then sometimes the monks went to teach the nuns too. But there's all these kinds of things that, you know, we have to talk about and uh, and work out for ourselves because a new different situation here. Shall we dedicate? Due to this madness of the enlightened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious body mind not yet born arise and grow. May the born have no decline, but increase forever.